If you would, we're going to be looking in our Bibles at Psalm 62 this evening. You want to put a finger there. It begins in the superscription saying, To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. So if you have one finger there in Psalm 62, we're going we're to come back to that. But I just want to look at who Jeduthun is. And you also see the mention of him in Psalm 39. So just so we have an, an idea here. In First Chronicles chapter 25, we see the mention of Jeduthun. That perhaps gives us a little idea of who he was. We read in 1 Chronicles 25.1, David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jebuthun, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. The list of those who did not or did the work and their duties was, and it goes on to list in verse 3, of Jeduthun, the sons of Jeduthun. And then you just go a little bit further, and you see further mention of him in verse 6. They were all under the direction of their father in the music in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman were under the order of the king. And so Jeduthun was obviously a musician. If you've been here on Wednesday nights, we have gone through David's preparation of preparing the building of the temple. Not only did he prepare the building of the temple, the supplies and all of the workers, David organized all of that, but he also organized how worship would be taking place. He organized the musicians. And so no doubt Jeduthun was one of these musicians. We have no idea what the circumstances were for what Psalm 62 um, finds itself in, in the situation of David's life, but most commentators believe he's looking back um, on the struggles that he had with Saul, which is a common refrain as we've been going through the Psalms, is that he's looking back on his struggles with Saul. And we certainly see that he had tremendous struggles with him. Now, as we do look at this psalm, we will see very clearly that it is messianic. And it's so clearly messianic in that it could only be describing Christ. And we'll see that come through. And so as we look at the psalm, I want you to think of two things. David's historical speaking of this psalm, but then also, as we will read through it now, how it points to Christ. And so let us hear Psalm 62, the Word of God. Beginning in verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. 
He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of God. We see this easily divides up into several sections. I've marked it off into six different sections that we will see through this. I think that it's, it's helpful if you mark those. If you are averse to writing in your Bible, well, take note of them. Uh, but I think it's, it's helpful to see the divisions. And you can see those and how there's often a change in tone, a change of address that's taking place. And so we see in the first two verses, David states a commitment to wait for God. And so the two first verses, David is committed to wait for God. He is stating it as something that he is doing. He says in verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. We think about that, waits in silence. It's literally uh, the word wait is not there. If you were to translate this literally, it's my soul in silence. And so what that means is the way it is translated in our English translation, it is to wait. It's to wait in silence, to wait to rest. And this waiting is taking place in God. You'll notice, for God alone. You're going to notice the word alone come through this psalm many times. So many times that Spurgeon called this the alone or the only psalm. Because you see it referenced over and over again. Either that word only or alone in Spurgeon's Bible, it was translated only. This is the only psalm. Because he will only rest, he will only wait, he will only remain silent in God. And this is a waiting in expectation because he finds himself in turmoil. He's not waiting for something to end. He's not waiting for the persecution to stop. He's not waiting for whatever was troubling him to be removed. He is waiting. He is resting. He is silent before God. That's an amazing statement because when we find ourselves in turmoil, we're saying, please God, make the turmoil go away. But he's not saying that. He's silent in God and in God alone. Resting in God as the storms of life are surrounding him. What a tremendous statement of reliance upon God. Why does he do this alone? 
Well, from him comes my salvation, my deliverance. Oftentimes when you find that word salvation in the Old Testament, we tend to import the New Testament idea of salvation um, in terms of we receive salvation in Christ. Well, in David's immediate context, that's not what he was speaking of. He was speaking of a deliverance from the persecution or whatever he was facing that it would come. That's why he could rest his soul in God. Because any deliverance he has comes from God. And he continues to go down this path of explaining why he alone. This is that alone psalm, remember? That only psalm. He only is my rock, my salvation, and my, my fortress. To say that he is his rock is to point to God's immovability. That God does not change. There's no other foundation upon which he rests. To say that it is his salvation is he has no other deliverer. Deliverance is not coming from anyone else. It's coming from God and from God alone. And to say that it is his stronghold or his fortress is to say that God is his safety. There is no other. God only. God alone is his fortress. God alone is his rock. God alone is his salvation. What's the result of that? I want you to notice this and listen carefully. When God alone is our rock, our salvation, and our fortress, the result is this. Because you're not relying on any other means, I shall not be greatly shaken. As soon as our trust becomes in means of our own devices, guess what? You're going to be easily shaken. You might as well stand and live on a fault line if you trust in other things because you're about to be shaken. But when it's God alone, shall not be greatly shaken. It's amazing because people are pursuing Him. People are mocking Him. People are coming after him through Saul. And he says, I shall not be greatly shaken. He moves on in verses 3 through 4, where he changes the topic for a moment to teach the character of the wicked. And he begins by asking the question, how long will all of you attack a man? How long will you keep coming after me? It's amazing the way it's stated, how long will you attack? It's specifically in speech. Just like a few weeks ago, we looked at how it was through the use of someone's tongue that they were coming after David. This is exactly what's taken place here. In fact, you see that in the entire context. This is not necessarily, the, oh, their desire, their heart's desire is to physically harm David. Actually, what's taking place, the way they're going after him is that they're coming after him in their speech. One translation is this, how long will you shout? Seeking to harm him through what they can do, what damage they can render upon him with their mouths. It's amazing when we stop to think about that. 
just for a moment, because we, we intuitively know this. The mouth is so dangerous. The tongue is such a, a wildfire, a spark that creates a wildfire. And David experienced that tremendously where there was constant betrayal. And when you study through 1 Samuel, you see the, the level of deception that was taking place around David with Saul and those that were continually going after him. Now, the translation here says, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, which is hard to understand what that means. But basically, the consequence of them coming after him is that they will be like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. Now, if you look in your English translation, if you have the ESV, it sounds like David saying that they're attacking him as if he's a leaning wall or a tottering fence, but that's just, that's just not the, what's being stated there. It's actually... How long will you attack a man to batter him? You are like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. That's how we should understand that. And in other words, it is this, as you all will be shattered, that idea of a leaning wall is really that of a stretched out wall, and a tottering fence is a breached wall. And so the consequence of them coming after David, the the Lord's anointed, is that they themselves will be shattered like a stretched wall, a breached wall. In other words, what David is saying is this, why are you coming after me? God is going to destroy you like a wall that has been stretched out. You know, when you're standing behind a wall, you do feel some security. That's a false sense of security for these people. When he says that they, the wall is stretched out, it's as if you have a wall with gaps in it that can be easily overcome by an enemy. And so while these that are mocking the Lord's anointed have a wall that they perceive as being a a thing of safety, David's actually saying, you're attacking me, but God will destroy you. That wall that you have as security is nothing but crumbling bricks. It can't offer you protection. I couldn't help it as I was looking through the grammar of this this morning or this afternoon and and thinking of the Alamo. And there in Texas, they were being surrounded in the Alamo by Santana's army. That wall of protection did not last very long until they scaled the wall and slaughtered the Texans. Sometimes we have a wall around that we think is going to protect us, but it's just a wall. And what David is saying here are those that go after the Lord's anointed, they have a false sense of security that will not last. God will destroy them. 
they, behind their false wall, it says in verse 4, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. I want you to notice this. This is their plan. They're actively seeking to tear David down. There's evil intentions behind what they do, but when they're in front of David's face, what do they look like? They're praising David. They act like they're David's friends. They're waiting for David to turn his back so they can shove a knife in it. But I want you to notice that idea of them planning. I think this is meant to remind us of Psalm 2. You know Psalm 2, verses 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do they plan? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, those that would seek to wipe out the Lord's anointed, they plan for it. They devise plans. They conspire together to go after the Lord's anointed. But they're actually just like a wall that is broken down. They have a false sense of security. We ought to understand the wicked such. We ought to understand that the wicked that oppose the Lord's anointed have a false sense of security. And let me tell you that if you're in Christ and that if you're in the church, you have the greatest security there is. Christ says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Christ says that he will build the church. That's Christ, our great king. It doesn't matter if the nations plot and rage against the Lord's anointed. The Lord has conquered them already. They have a sense, a false sense of security. Now it's amazing, David says in verses 1 through 2 that he's committed to waiting on the Lord, that he is waiting on the Lord. He moves in verses 3 through 4 to, to teach us of the character of the wicked, not only their desire to destroy David, that they're, that they're hypocrites, that they lie to his face. But then, interestingly, beginning in verse 5 all the way through verse 7, he actually commands himself to wait for God. So, Verses 1 through 2, he's saying, I'm waiting for God. My soul rests in God. I'm silent in God. But then notice in verse 5 and 6, it's as if he's repeating what he's already said, except for he doesn't say that he's doing it. He actually, at this point, commands himself to do it. Look what he says. He says, for God alone, O my soul... Wait in silence. That's an imperative. That is an imperative that he's commanding himself to wait in silence for the Lord. So if you really admire David in verses 1 and 2 and said, that's really never me, I'm always stressed out, well, we can relate in verse 5 where he says, hey, soul, calm down, rest in God. He commands himself. David instructs himself after he reflects on the wicked, 
after he reflects on those that would lie to his face only to tear him down. And so while he repeats verses 1 and 2, he does it from a different angle, and that is a command. And sometimes we have to do this, don't we? I think the Christian life is actually like this. At times it seems like it's easy to trust and wait when things are easy. When things are going good, it's easy to rest in God and be silent in God. But when things become tough, when there's unexpected things that take place in life, when turmoil comes and we find ourselves in the midst of it, I think we have to command ourselves, be silent. Be silent. But we don't just say that. We actually, look what it says. We're told why. For, the word for. Wait in silence for, this is telling us why we wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. Do you ever remind yourself of that? Our hope is not in the things of this earth, but our hope is in God and God alone. We need, to, we need that reminder. Especially when we find ourselves in a place of disaster. When things are tough. And this is amazing because he says, for my hope is from him. You think of it like this, just for a second to get to the human nerve. The context is here of people that are praising him, but they really want him to fall. That can make you become quite cynical of people, can't it? Because everyone wants praise. His hope is not in the praise of man, but his hope is in God. He says, why? He is his hope. He says, he is my only rock and salvation. This is, again, the only psalm. God alone, God only is my rock and salvation. I'm... I am not saved by what others can or cannot do to me. I'm not saved by what I can do. You you think about this for a second. When we are disappointed or we lose hope for how others treat us, this can actually be a great help to remember people can't save us. People are not our foundation. We We don't find our rock from flattery from People. They're not our foundation. God is. This is why he says, I shall not be shaken. Before he says, I shall not be greatly shaken. Now, after he has discussed the nature of wickedness and how they want to come after him and how they're coming after him with his tongue, he again commands himself to wait in silence and then concludes after saying that God is his rock and salvation and fortress, he says, I shall not be shaken. Why? Because God only is those things. As soon as we remove the only, we have entered into a fallible, false assurance. If we say, God is my refuge and my rock and my salvation, but I also get comfort in these other areas that pull me through, then we will be greatly shaken. This is why the word only is so key 
for us. He says, On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. This can only happen when you have the Lord as your foundation. You know, such an important verse is Matthew chapter 7. It's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 24 of Matthew chapter 20, or Matthew 7, verse 24, you read this, everyone then, I just want you to notice this, the word then could be translated therefore, therefore, which means this, verse 24 is the conclusion to everything Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. Now, he's specifically in this context referring to his sermon that he just preached. We will also say this would apply to the whole entire Word of God. But just so we know contextually, Jesus is referring to the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone, therefore, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Do you know why most people end up in some form of biblical counseling? Most of the time. is because they have been building their house on shifting sand. And so when life comes crashing down upon them, guess what happens to the house that they built? That looks just like the house on the rock. The floods come, the rain comes, and the house comes down with it. We have no foundation apart from God and His Word. We have no foundation outside of Christ. He alone, He only is our foundation. And if we don't have that, guess what? We'll be greatly shaken. We will be greatly shaken. We do not have the Lord plus other things. It's interesting that he says he is my, my glory and my salvation. Continuing on in this is that God is his glory and salvation. And most likely that glory is David's reign as king. It's dependent upon God. You know, it's interesting, when you study the life of David, what separates David from most of the kings that follow him is that David trusted in God as king. Others sought after the gods of the surrounding nations. Others sought after Egypt for help. Others went to other means. And guess what happened to their kingdoms? They were shaken. They were shaken. When we seek to use our own means for salvation, we are stretched out like that fence that's stretched out and is only a sense 
of false security. Now you'll notice verse 8 stands alone. David's no longer reflecting and saying what he's doing. He now speaks to the congregation. I, I find this fascinating. One commentator gives the picture of this as that David's leading the music and it's as if he's singing because the psalms were meant to be sung. He, he, he instructs through song the congregation. If Tyler was here, he would sing it for us. I won't try, but this is what he says in verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. That's the king now instructing the congregation of what to do, is that he's calling the gathered congregation after he has instructed them of his own heart. He is now calling them to trust at all times. And that is to say that in all occasions to trust God. We don't trust God only when it's easy. We trust God in the unexpected difficult times as well. And he says, pour out your heart before him. Why? Why do you pour out? Because he is to be trusted. Who else would you turn to in a time of trouble? David then goes on in verses 9 through 10 to teach the futility of human devices. He says, Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than the breath. When he says those of low estate and those of high estate, that's who else is there? He's talking about mankind. And life is a vapor. Whatever the station of life one finds themselves, this is showing us the vanity of human solutions. And he says men are lighter than a breath. And what does this mean? Well, in terms of, of power, human strength, but a breath. Ingenuity, whatever it is, whatever it is, it's lightweight. It's but a breath. Think of it in this as, what about in terms of reason? If reason was all that powerful, why didn't we arrive after the Enlightenment? You see, apart from the Word of God and an understanding of this world apart from the world, Word of God, It is lighter than a breath. What do men trust in? What is it that you trust in? He goes on to say, Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Notice what what he says here. He starts off in, these ne- in this negative sense of no, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. Why do people trust in extortion? Why do they t- set their hopes on robbery? Because they think that they're going to gain some sort of wealth, and by having that wealth, they have some sort of sen- sense of security. You might think, well, that, that doesn't describe me. I wouldn't do those things. But notice, if riches increase... Do we find comfort in those? 
I mean, in some sense, you, you probably do. But ultimately, notice what he says, set not your heart on them. What is it that we trust in? Because those things, if we set our heart on them, we are setting up ourselves to be shaken. What is it that our heart is set upon? What is it that provides us with comfort in this life? Is it that I am not my own, but that I am solely Christ's? Or do the things of this world, are, is that my hope? Finally, David, in contrast to the weakness to the sons of Adam, he then teaches us the power of God in verses 11 through 12. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. I want you to just put these two things together. When we think of the power of God, His omnipotence, it is, it, it is limitless. It, it cannot be weighed. It cannot be measured. It is eternal. It is infinite power. It's the very power that God uses through His Word to bring all things into existence and in His providence hold all things together together. His power, as we've said many times, there's nothing on this earth that we can point to and say, that's like God's power. Because anything that we show that is very powerful too, it's still infinitely less than God's power. The most powerful hurricane or tornado that just went through a town in Mississippi this last week and tragically killed over 20 people. That's incredible power that we can't, even, we can't even begin to fathom. It's infinitely less than God's power. That power, though, is coupled with what? Notice what it says in the text. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. You're ever concerned of whether God can keep you? His steadfast love, His mercy, His covenantal love upon His people, it's coupled with His infinite power. We don't separate the attributes of God as if He's, he's all-powerful and he, he's, he's steadfast love. and he's No, he, God is. This is why He introduces Himself as I am. You can't separate his, his power from any other attribute. God is His attributes. God is all-powerful. But God is also love and holds those on whom he has set his love on. Which is comforting because he says, for you will render to a man according to his work. One day that all-powerful, all-loving God, who's also a just God, will judge the world in righteousness.
and we'll be judged by our righteousness, which is described as a filthy rag, or we'll be judged by the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. Praise the Lord that we have the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as we think about what has been said here, David's facing persecution mainly through hypocrisy, those that would lie to his face, that praise him to his face, but ultimately they desire his own demise. Perhaps you've faced hypocrisy in your life. You know, I think we have to be aware of, of flattery. Don't fall for flattery. Give the Lord praise. Don't seek after flattery, which is for self-glorification. You'll notice that he says, on God rest my salvation and my glory. And then we should also check ourselves. That's, that's never said of ourselves, right? That we're never hypocritical. And so while David faced this, ultimately it is Christ that waited perfectly upon the Lord when surrounded with false lips. Let me just give you a few examples. In Mark chapter 7, verse 6, when the Pharisees are trying to catch the Lord Jesus, he says this of them. He said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When the Pharisees opened their mouth, their mouth was like their father, Satan, full of lies, bent on doing their father, Satan's will. Their desires were his desires. They were hypocrites. In vain. They praised God. But really what was in their hearts was they wanted to murder the Son of God. In John chapter 6, Jesus not only faced hypocrisy and the flattering lips of, of religious leaders, but he also faced it with the crowds. I think in John 6 you see this so clearly Jesus feeds them 5,000 plus the, the others that were around. And we read this, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So here's the picture of John 6. Jesus has fed them. They recognize something supernatural has happened. And so they begin to praise Jesus. Now Jesus begins to to explain what's taking place. They're praising Jesus. Jesus has fed them. And then you'll notice in verse 25, Jesus has gone to the other side of the sea 
And we read in verse 25, when they found him on the other side, so they were praising him, Jesus escapes from them. They search Jesus out, and look what happens. And they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, what Jesus says to them is, you're coming to me not because of me. You're coming to me because you want to eat. You're wanting me to perform some sort of miracle for you. So they praise him. When he feeds them, Jesus knows what there is in their heart. He goes across the sea to get away from them, and they follow him. Can you imagine the flattery that's coming at Jesus? Can you imagine the praise that they're giving him? We can't believe that you fed us like that. You're so wonderful. Jesus then begins to teach them the word of God. You know how it ends? Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And no one has ever faced praise to their face with murderous intention in their hearts more so than Jesus. Jesus has faced the praise of man from people that actually hated him more so than David could have ever imagined. There was greater wickedness and hatred and murderous thoughts in the hearts of those that praised Jesus than anyone has ever faced. Isn't that amazing to think about? Is that our Savior has faced that very thing? You might have faced that in your life. But, but Jesus faced it and was yet righteous. Jesus faced it and experienced it and yet sinned not. What a merciful Savior we have that knows when we are tempted that we can go to Him and pour out our heart to Him our God, and trust in Him, for He faced it, but never once sinned. It's amazing. He faced the slicing tongue so that we would not have to. And our comfort is this, is Christ has triumphed. He has triumphed over death. He has triumphed over the kingdoms. He has triumphed over those flattering tongues and the hypocrites that come after the Lord's anointed. Christ, that is Messiah, means the Lord's anointed is the full realization of the one who waited silently in the Lord while hypocritical tongues praised him but yet wanted to kill him. And guess what? They did kill him. And he rose again, conquering death. God alone is the one we trust. In Christ alone is the one we trust. Because Christ alone conquered death. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And 
praise you that in Him alone and only in Him do we find salvation, do we find rest. You, O God, are our rock. You are our salvation. You are our fortress. You alone are these things, only you. Father, by your grace, may we hold on to this truth and may it always be a means of comfort for us and may it always elicit praise from our mouths. May we be quick to share this wonderful news of Christ with the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.